This is Big Talk. Michael Glab here. Uh, this week, uh, I'm going to forego my usual signature opening when I say my guest this week in the studio. We're not in the studio. It's COVID fever time. We're in my garage office at home. My guest via Zoom, Craig Fairman, the journalist, historian, and author. Craig, thank you for being on Big Talk. Hey, it's my pleasure. Now, Craig has recently, within the last couple of months, released a fabulous new book, and it is called Author-in-Chief, The Untold Story of Our Presidents and the Books They Wrote. It's a book about books written by the presidents, right, Craig? That, that's exactly it, and, and I hope it appeals to people who like history. There are lots of new stories about, you know, even presidents that you think you know well, like Abraham Lincoln, but I also hope it's a book that appeals to, to anyone who's a serious reader or who loves books, because I tried to trace, you know, the history of bookstores, the history of reading, because you can't tell why books have mattered or what books have been important without understanding how readers have, have made them important. You have been working on this, uh, had been working on this for a long time, apparently. It was released by avid reader press that's an imprint of simon and schuster it was barack obama's book that got you thinking about this yeah yeah so it was it was more than 10 years ago i in terms of actually working on the book it took about 10 years and and it started even a little bit earlier because it was in 2008 and i was in grad school but i was not paying as much attention to my, to my studies as i probably should have been i was paying attention to the presidential election because 2008 was such an exciting time. It was such an important election. And so one of the things that was important and exciting about it was that books were, were right at the heart of the election and, and thus were right at the heart of America's civic life, yeah. uh, especially Obama's books, Dreams from My Father and Audacity of Hope. So I read those books, really enjoyed them, just thought it was cool that so many other people were really enjoying them. And, and I guess my question was, was there a history there? Is this the first time this had happened? So I started digging in and, and because nobody had ever written on this topic or this angle before, I really had to start by going to research libraries and just making these lists, you know, how many books did John Quincy Adams write? That kind of stuff. Huh. And, and once I saw the list, I saw that the, the history of this phenomenon is the history of America. I mean, the first campaign book, you know, a president who has a book that, that shapes their campaign the way Obama's shaped his, that was Thomas Jefferson, the first president who writes a presidential memoir, the kind of book that Obama is now writing um, right now. That was John Adams. So the history of these books is as old as American history, and, and it's been right at the center of American history, too. You know, that John Adams book, or maybe it's another of his, is interesting because you had written, I had no idea Adams wrote the first presidential autobiography, and he had. He, you quote him as saying, writing was, quote, painful and distressing, almost like a blow on the elbow or the knees. It's crazy. And it's one of those moments where if you sort of try to understand a president as a writer, I feel like you understand a president as a human being, too. Because, you know, Adams was, was such an impulsive and emotional person. And so he's exactly the kind of person who would not like to write slowly. And if he was struggling with his writing, would say something like, you know, this feels like people are causing me physical pain and anger. <laughs> he was a very melodramatic person. Um, <laughs> and you can see that in the writing. But I also think that's what made his writing good, because he, he wrote an autobiography that 
even by the standards of his own time, when, when autobiography was a much different genre and a much different form, but, and even by the standards of our time, it's just such an intimate and revealing book. He's really willing to talk negatively about his enemies, like Alexander Hamilton. He's willing to talk about his personal life, his love life. It's a fascinating and, and deeply personal book. And I think the only reason Adams could do that in that time period was because he couldn't really control himself. You know, the same impulses that would make him lose control when he was attacking enemies also made him sort of lose control when he was talking about his own emotional states. I wonder if way back then that a guy like Adams wrote a book, not the way people write books today saying, oh, I'm going to make a pile of money on this. He wrote a book just to write the book. Exactly. And that's one thing, that, one reason my book took so long is that I really wanted to understand the kind of context that you're talking about and not treat these books as just sort of free-floating uh, texts that we compare to each other, but understand the, the conditions that went into how they were written and how they were consumed. And so it's even more than what you're saying. John Adams knew that this book would not be published until after he died, because oh. when you were an author in this period, especially if you were a president and somebody who had, you know, a political reputation, you couldn't write a book and publish a book because that would be seen as arrogant and vain and just not becoming of somebody who had led or wanted to lead the country. And it's really weird to think about today when, you know, we expect our politicians to tweet and go on cable TV and do all that. But there was a real change in, in how presidents and presidential candidates carried themselves. And, and that change is one of the stories I tell in my book, because it's also a change you can see in the, the sort of books that they wrote. I notice all the different presidents you cover here, and there are many. There are more than 13. You've got it divided into 13 chapters. Mm -hmm. Some of the chapters uh, cover two or three or four presidents, not covering Donald Trump's book. There's a writerly answer to that, actually. And it's just that I, I wanted to write a book that was fun to read. And yeah. so I spent 10 years on this, and I read a lot of, let's let's pick a Democrat so we can keep this writerly and not political. I, I could have talked a lot about Jimmy Carter's books, but they're not really great books. Yeah. When they sold and when they made an impact, they made an impact in terms of just the fact that a president had written them, not that they were essential to him becoming president or essential to defining his post-White House legacy. So what I do have a little bit about Jimmy Carter, but what I do is I talk about how he was the first president to write on a word processor, which was a kind of precursor <laughs> to computers in Microsoft Word. You know, they were the size of a big microwave with this little calculator-sized screen. And I actually have, a, I dug up a really cool photo of Carter working working on his word processor, and, and I included that in the book. All that to say that I didn't really want to do a comprehensive book. I know a lot of people uh, who would do this would have tried to be comprehensive and, and have a list of every book by president and all that, but that's, I, I'm somebody who cares about stories and ideas, not yeah. encyclopedic lists. And so I wanted the chapters to have really, really good material and really fresh ideas. So I, I spent a week at the Dwight Eisenhower Library, for instance. Wonderful people there, found some really interesting stuff. There's only a couple paragraphs about Dwight Eisenhower in my book because I thought about doing a chapter on him and I had you know, new stuff, but the chapter just sort of repeated some of the ideas and, and, and takeaways that the Harry Truman chapter did. So I just, yeah. you know, telescoped down the Eisenhower material and let the Truman material do it. So that applies to Trump um, as well. But the weird thing is, is that he is in the book in a little bit and uh -huh. he was in the book when I first started working on it back in 2009, 2010. Because I, the chapter I started with was the chapter on Ronald Reagan, because I wanted to interview as many people who were involved with his book and involved in the publishing industry in the 1980s before they passed away. So I started there. And the 1980s, as, as I'm sure you know, was this kind of 
changing moment in publishing, blockbuster publishing, things like Walden Books in shopping malls, and, yeah. and soon after that, Barnes and Nobles in shopping centers and suburbs and things like that. And so publishing really changed where a big hit book in hardcover could all of a sudden sell millions of copies. And you know, I wanted to think, who is a celebrity who kind of some captured the sort of cheesy 1980s celebrity culture and who had a couple big best-selling books and who would go on TV and talk about those books and wasn't really a writer, but was somebody who sort of used books in this kind of blockbuster fashion. Yeah. Remember, okay, remember, this is 2010. And I was like, how about Donald Trump? Part of the deal. I vaguely wow. remember that that was a book. That was a big seller. Nobody really thinks about him anymore, but, but that'll, he'll be a good person to put in there. And so if you're reading my Reagan chapter and you get to the, the stuff about blockbuster publishing, you know, Trump is the example. And I interviewed Trump's editor and got some really good stories. And it might seem like I'm being really clever and setting this up, but I just picked him in 2010. And then one day in 2016, I woke up and I had many thoughts about it. <laughs> but one of the thoughts I had was, wow, he's, he's now in the book as a president, not just just a celebrity author. And so right. I've talked a little bit about his books when I've done the press. And it's, it's interesting that his books are much calmer than he is in terms of doing speeches. And that, that probably has a lot to do with the fact that he doesn't write the books. But, you know, there are things that you can take away from his books, but I'm not sure that a whole chapter on him would have been uh, revealing towards the kind of broad story of American history that I wanted to tell. Now, speaking of Ronald Reagan, who knew? I did not know. He wrote an autobiography in 1965 entitled, Where's the Rest of Me? Well, that was right about the time he was coming in as the governor of California, beat Pat Brown a very popular governor at that time. What was that about? This is one of those, another one of those examples, uh, like the John Adams one, where if you look at a president as a writer, you can really see a brand new side of them. And, you know, I've got one chapter on Reagan, but there's more new material in there about Reagan and more of a new perspective on him than, frankly, you'll find in a lot of full biographies of Reagan. So I really focused in on this book, which is forgotten, long out of print today, but I found new letters in Reagan's handwriting because I looked up the, the archive of his ghostwriter. And so I found their correspondence. No other Reagan biographer had seen it. And, and you're absolutely right that this was in the years right before Reagan ran for governor. And it's such an important time to understand him as a politician. And so the two big things I learned were that, first of all, the cliche of Reagan is that he was just an actor and he repeated other people's lines. And, you know, yeah. you can argue the truth of that, certainly by the 1980s when he's in the White House. But in the 1960s, that's just not true. You could see in those letters that I discovered that he was really trying to think, well, how do I make conservative ideas appeal to lots of people? And how do I tie my personality and my life story to those ideas? And he, he didn't get help on that because he hadn't even hired the help yet. This was just him doing the writing, doing the work, and, and figuring out his life story. And, and that's what the book is. It's a biography that talks a lot about him as an actor, but it also talks a lot about his life growing up in Illinois. When you look at the different revisions he went through, he really did a good job, you know, polishing up his life and connecting it to those broad themes and sort of developing this kind of optimistic approach to selling conservatism. And, and it worked really well for him. And, and it helped him when he ran for governor. It's, it's a book, like I said, that doesn't get mentioned much today, but it sold more than 200,000 copies in the 1960s. Pat Brown would make fun of it on the campaign trail when they ran against each other. Um, one, of the, one of the reporters I talked to who had covered the race, you know, he was talking to Reagan's aides and said, and one of the aides said, hey, can we get you a copy of this book? And the reporter said, oh, it's okay. Pat Brown's people already got me a copy. <laughs> so they had a laugh about that. It, 
like a lot about Reagan, you know, two different groups of people could look at the same thing and see two different things. But still, the important thing is that Reagan created that thing himself. And, and that's the other big takeaway is that he was a much more effective writer than I think a lot of people realize and, and much more of a reader than people realize. And I do think that those skills helped him, um, you know, especially in the 1960s and the 1970s. Yeah, it is interesting in as much as during his presidency, people sort of developed a, a cartoon figure caricature of him, of who he was, and he really wasn't that kind of person. There was, there was depth to him, there was feeling to him that uh, people on the left, say, didn't want to allow for him. Yeah, and it, 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 it's, it's hard to say with him because of his age and because of by the end, it, it, you know, it, it's hard to say how much of that was true. I also talk a little bit about the second book he wrote with, after the White House, which was not a good book. And, you know, I interviewed a lot of the people around him at that time, and they talked, you know, what they said sort of reflected that the, the kind of cliched understanding of Reagan, that he was detached, that he didn't really care, that he wasn't really focused. So there's yeah. no question that there was a different young Reagan, a difference between the Reagan of 1960s and a Reagan of the late 80s and the early 90s. At the very least, Reagan was a much more interesting and much more complicated figure than you would realize in the 1960s, and his book is a great way to see that. Chapter four of your book uh, deals with, among a couple of others, Andrew Jackson. Now, Andrew Jackson has become vilified of late, uh, and for some good reason, obviously, but one of the things we say about uh, Andrew Jackson nowadays is that he was illiterate but he wrote a book. That's right. And I mean, we're not the only ones who said that. The people who were running against him would say that too. That, you know, he famously faced off with John Quincy Adams, who was one of our more scholarly presidents. And so the battle lines that were drawn, and, and, and this was a shift in campaigning. Campaigning, even in the 1820s, was becoming more superficial, more symbolic, more similar to what we see today. And so the lines, this is a slogan that I found in an old newspaper. You know, it's John Quincy Adams who can write, versus John Andrew Jackson, who can fight. And it sometimes <laughs> felt like, you know, the race was no more complicated than that. But, you know, that was the superficial version. What was happening behind the scenes is that Andrew Jackson painstakingly worked to find the right ghostwriters to write a biography of him. He s sat down for interviews. He reviewed every page, corrected facts, helped secure the best publisher for it. And again, I found letters in Andrew Jackson's handwriting that nobody had seen before, where he is negotiating with the best publishers in America, trying to make sure that this book gets out, does well, and has that kind of literary heft behind it. Now, Jackson doesn't want his name on it. it it's very carefully set up to be a biography of Andrew Jackson, because if Andrew Jackson wrote his own book or had somebody else help him write his own book, that would be seen as arrogant and vain for the same right. reason that John Adams couldn't publish his book in his lifetime. But when you take the time to look behind the scenes, you realize that Andrew Jackson was doing all the work, and he was a very cunning literary strategist, which doesn't line up with, you know, the way we understand him today, but, but it kind of does because, you know, he has a very um, problematic record in terms of a lot of the things he did towards Native Americans. But the reason he was able to do that is because he, he rewrote what the presidency could be. He really expanded the idea of executive power. And that same ambition and cunning showed up when he was running for president. He just realized that the best way to do it was through a book. You have covered almost two dozen presidents in this book. How many of these books do you think were written by the actual guys 
Well, there, there's a lot of really good examples. John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, Abraham Lincoln, Ulysses Grant, Calvin Coolidge, Barack Obama, John Quincy Adams. So there are plenty of people who did the writing themselves. But one thing I would say, and this would kind of be a surprise if I went back 10 years ago and told the version of me who was just starting to work on this book. But by the end of the book, I kind of felt like I had to stick up for ghostwriting a little bit. The reason for that is I, I just feel like people are good at different things. And some people yeah. are good at writing and some people are good at being a politician. And there's sometimes people are good at both. Abraham Lincoln, of course, is a great example. But, you know, George Washington's farewell address, one of the still one of the defining texts of America's mm -hmm. kind of civic religion. He didn't write that. James Madison wrote one draft of it, and Alexander Hamilton really wrote the final draft of it. Now, George Washington was very involved. He reviewed it. He gave guidance on the style. He gave guidance on the ideas. The speech was important because it went out under George Washington's name. But still, it's not like George Washington was debating the right conjunction to use or something like that because he knew he wasn't good at that. But Alexander Hamilton was really good at it. So to me, the takeaway is not necessarily that presidents should write their own books, although when they can do that, it's fabulous. Um, but the takeaway is that they should be really carefully involved. They should do the work. And I guess they should also pick ghostwriters as talented as Alexander Hamilton. That, that wasn't a bad choice. <laughs> now, the story always went that uh, JFK, as a young man, wrote profiles in Courage, and the opposition always said, oh, his, his rich old man hired somebody to write it for him. What did you find? In terms of bombshells, in terms of surprises, I think the JFK chapter is, is the most revealing one in my book. And so I spent about a week at the Kennedy Library, really review, tried to review everything. I went back and listened to the old recordings of Kennedy allegedly dictating parts of the book. And that, you know, you could, I had to crank the volume and wear headphones because these had been played so many times that the dicta belts had been worn thin. Wow. But I really wanted to go through and, and give the most comprehensive uh, look at whether Kennedy wrote his book or not, and not just his first or his second book, Profiles in Courage, but his first book, Why England Slept. And that's really the most interesting thing about it is that he cared so much that people thought this. Because if you review the record, there's just no way that he had anything to, to do with the book. He was not actively involved. He he didn't even have the idea for Profiles in Courage. The idea came from Ted Sorensen, who did most of the work. And yeah. there was no way Kennedy could have been actively involved because he was dealing with two gruesome back surgeries, long recoveries. He was, his health was just in a terrible way. There's really no case to be made that Kennedy wrote the book. What's interesting, though, is that Kennedy himself really believed that that he deserved the credit for writing that book. He huh. worked so much harder to take literary credit than he worked to do literary work. It really mattered to him that writers saw him as an intellectual and voters saw him as an intellectual. And he wouldn't you know, actually take the time to work hard on it. Ronald Reagan was much more of a writer. There's much more of a paper trail in the archives of Ronald Reagan writing sentences, taking ideas, you know, reformulating them, refashioning them. There isn't that for John F. Kennedy. But Kennedy really wanted that reputation of being a writer. Kennedy would, and this is while he was a U.S. senator, you know, he, he had important things to do. But he would write his editor and say, uh, I was in the airport this weekend and didn't see enough copies of my book for sale. What can we do about that? <laughs> he, with the Pulitzer Prize, this is a story where, like you said, you know, people say, oh, Kennedy's dad got him this. I found documents at the Kennedy Library that prove that Kennedy himself was personally involved in getting the Pulitzer Prize for a book that he didn't even write. I mean, there, there's more evidence of him working hard to get the Pulitzer Prize and to get the plaudits for being a writer than there are of him actually trying to be a writer himself. And so, <laughs> like I said about the ghostwriting, it's, I don't think that ghostwriting is a negative thing. I think it's a fine approach. 
But when Kennedy used ghostwriting to bring himself personal fame and, and intellectual cachet, that becomes really a moral question, I think. Are you okay to take a Pulitzer Prize for a book that you didn't spend much time on? If somebody is willing to do that, then I think that tells us something about them as a person. You have written a lot of articles for the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal. You've also commented on these types of things, presidential writers and even first lady writers, over the last 10 years or so. Right after Bill Clinton and James Patterson released The President is Missing, which was a thriller, mm -hmm. you wrote a piece for the New York Times about presidents who loved reading thrillers and mysteries and detective stories. Now, who were some of those presidents and what were the titles they liked? Yeah, well, it's, it's almost easier to name the presidents who didn't like reading detective oh. stories than the presidents who did. And I, that's one thing I tried to answer in the essay, um, which is just sort of why are presidents so attracted to it? And, and I think it's because they're just the kinds of thinkers and thus the kinds of readers who like to control things and who like to be able to solve problems. And so what does a mystery novel do? It, it, right. it Among other things, it presents you with a problem that you're trying to solve before the book solves it for you. And so I think there's just something about that kind of detective fiction that really appeals to the kind of mind that wants to be president. But yeah, it's, you know, Abraham Lincoln didn't really like to read fiction. The one exception for him was the mysteries of Edgar Allan Poe. And so he liked to read that. Um, Woodrow Wilson read lots of detective fiction that was popular in the 1920s. And what's really interesting is that in the 1920s, detective fiction was still seen as a little, uh, a little, uh, lower class and a little, yeah. a little tawdry. You know, people didn't want to be known that they were reading detective fiction out in public. And Wilson didn't, Wilson just said, hey, I like to read it. There's a press conference where somebody said, you know, are, are you actually reading detective stories in the White House? And he's like, yeah, you know, after I spend all this time thinking about world wars and all that, I want to read a book that will just let me take my mind off things and distract me. And if it's not set in Europe or America, that's all the better. And so the fact that Wilson was so public about his love of detective fiction really elevated the genre and really made it something that anybody could like without feeling guilty. There was a critic who wrote a big essay about um, detective fiction a few years later, and this critic said that two people had done a lot to make mysteries and detective fiction, you know, broadly popular in America. The first one was Conan Doyle. The second one was Woodrow Wilson. The historian, the World War II historian, Rick Atkinson, uh, writes a lot about Eisenhower while he was the uh, Supreme Commander, reading a lot of cheap, pulpy Western novels. Yeah, Reagan was another person who really loved those kinds of those kinds of pulpy Western books. But I mean, you know, I, I think it makes sense if you're a president and you're having to think about problems with that are endlessly complex in your yeah. day job, maybe in your nighttime reading, you want something that's a little bit simpler and, and a little bit more relaxing. FDR is another person who really loved to read, you know, the book that he was reading when he died was, was a cheap genre pulpy kind of book like you're talking about. And so this doesn't really reflect on anybody's intellectual capacity. I just think it's, you know, it, it's brain candy to help them relax. But I do think that, you know, with those sorts of genre books, if you're a politician who really likes to think and solve and, and analyze, those are the kinds of books that let you do that. That's one of their thrills. About 10 years ago, you did a piece for the New York Times about first ladies who wrote mm -hmm. books. And I learned uh, that Lady Bird Johnson actually had the discipline to sit down every single night right after Lyndon Johnson became the president 
and started working on a book. Whatever happened to that book? It's an example how the sorts of things that we think of as really modern have actually been a part of the book, the book trade for a long time because she, she ended up producing a couple million words, then they condensed that down until they had a really good manuscript. And, and when publishers wanted to see that, they had, it was literally under lock and key. They would have to send in one editor at a time. There was a, you know, almost a vault-like setting where they could look at this manuscript before they decided what to bid on it. They bid a lot of money on it, and the book ended up becoming a huge bestseller. It sold a lot more copies than Lyndon Johnson's presidential memoirs. It was called <laughs> White House Diary. And it's a, it's a really good book. It's a, it, it really gives you a personal perspective. And so you think of uh, Michelle Obama's Becoming, which has been a huge bestseller. At this point, one of the best-selling books in American publishing history. I think one of the reasons that it really resonates with people is that, A, it's, it's a good book. I mean, she did work with another writer, but like I said, she worked hard with another writer. She was actively involved, and the book captures her authentic stories and her authentic style. But also, it's a very personal book. So it's not necessarily about, you know, here's what Mitch McConnell did, and here's how Barack tried to outwit him. Um, it's, you know, this is what it felt like to be in the White House, or even before that, this is what it felt like to be married and, and worried about whether or not we could conceive a child. And so that personal perspective, whether it's in Lady Bird Johnson's book or Michelle Obama's book, readers respond to that. And I think First Lady books are some of the most important and interesting books because they give those personal details. Our guest of this week, Craig Furman, the journalist, historian, and author, what was your favorite book written by a president? I have to give a complicated answer, I guess. My, uh -huh. my favorite writer who was a president was Abraham Lincoln. He, he actually wrote a book. It's a, it, it's a pretty complicated story. It's my favorite chapter in the book, and it, it really has a lot of Indiana in the book. So if, if people check the book out, I think they'll really, they'll really enjoy the Lincoln chapter. But in terms of, you know, it's not that surprising. To, it might be surprising that Lincoln wrote a book, but it's not that surprising that Lincoln's a great writer. In terms of really surprising figures, the surprise for me was Calvin Coolidge who, you know, if people think about Coolidge at all, and I'm suspecting most people don't, <laughs> they think about him as being kind of famously terse, you know, the, the yeah. man of few words. And he was that. But he was also a fabulous writer. And he, this was recognized no at his time. You know, H.L. Mencken hated everything about Coolidge except his prose style. And even Mencken had to be like, yeah, this guy's a pretty good writer. And so <laughs> Coolidge had a good book that helped him become president. But even better, he wrote an autobiography after he was president. And, you know, to get back to that idea of him being terse, it's a pretty slim volume. It's not, you know, the 800 page book that you would expect from a president. It's about 150, 200 pages. And it's really personal. It really focuses on what did it feel like to be president? How, was, how did it change one's humanity to be president and to be in the White House? And it's a book that's still rewarding and, and fun to read today. Um, Coolidge was just a great writer in a way that, that I hadn't expected, and I really liked reading his prose. The book in question is Author-in-Chief, The Untold Story of Our Presidents and the Books They Wrote. The author of that is Craig Fairman, who's been our guest this week on Big Talk. Craig Thank you so much for being on Big Talk. Hey, it's my pleasure. I hope you and your listeners are staying safe, and it was a lot of fun to talk books with you. Everyone is voting for Jack Cause he's got what all the rest lack Everyone wants to back Jack Jack is on the right track Cause he's got High hopes, he's got high hopes 1960's the year for his high hopes Come on and vote for 
on top. Oops, there goes the opposition girl. Oops, there goes the opposition girl. Oops, there goes the opposition.